So tonight we'll be reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 4. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, um, we invite you to grab one of the blue ones from the back of the pew in front of you. You, of course, can also look it up on your phone or another device. So once again, we are reading from um, Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 4. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is God's word. Thanks for that, Betsy, and thanks so much, Jeff, for officiating that child dedication service for us. It's great to have you here. Uh, So for those of you who may be new joining us for the first time, really glad you're here. My name is Steve, lead pastor here. And just a couple weeks ago, we started the book of Hebrews that we're going to be walking through this fall and next spring. And what we looked at a couple weeks ago, we did an overview of Hebrews, and essentially what we saw is that Hebrews, at its heart, it's not a letter, it's not a narrative or a story, but it's an extended exhortation. So it's basically a sermon, a homily that's been written down for us, and because we know it's the genre of exhortation, what that means is, is we read the letter, anytime we see a command, we want to put a star around it, because that's going to help us emphasize what the author wants to emphasize. And here today we come to the first exhortation in, 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 the, in the sermon. So no, no exhortations in chapter 1. It's just the beauty of Christ. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So what the author is saying here essentially is our first warning in Hebrews. Hebrews, as you'll see, it's a constant mixture of like harsh warnings, but also coming alongside you with a pillow to remind you how amazing Christ is, okay? And so the first warning we see is essentially to beware of lazy river Christianity, okay? I love lazy river. Anytime I go to a water park, I love it. It's the thing I stay in the longest. Kelsey doesn't care for it so much. I love it. So lazy river might be great when you're at a water park, but when it comes to following Jesus, taking a lazy river approach where you just sit still and coast— 
can be disastrous. And this is really helpful because I think when a lot of us think about drifting away or walking away from the faith, we think about, you know, suddenly making some egregious decision or apostatizing suddenly. But this, this image of drifting gets at the fact that how we end up walking away from Jesus is through these tiny, imperceptible, atomistic, you know, changes in thinking or actions until suddenly, you know, we look back a year later, five years later, and we're far away from Jesus. You know, if you've ever gone into the beach and just laid on your back, I did this when I was six, looked up like 10 minutes later, I was a mile away from my parents, freaked out. So he's saying, you know, don't drift, okay, as you walk in the Christian life. And so what we're going to see in this passage is, first, how does drifting happen? So just so we can know how to avoid it, right? So first, how does drifting happen? And then number two, uh, once we know how it works, how can we avoid drifting? Okay, so number one, how does drifting take place? And then number two, how can we avoid drifting away from Christ? Okay, so first, number one, how does drifting happen? So starting at chapter one, verse five, what you'll notice is it looks like the author veers off the road and he does this extended excursus on angels, and so all of these passages here are Old Testament passages that are fulfilled in Jesus. And what the author is doing here for chap- uh, verse 5 through verse 14 is he's making a series of contrasts between Jesus and angels. And I'll summarize it for us. So first in verse 5, we see, you know, so angels are servants of God, but Jesus is the, son, the very son of God himself. Uh, Verse 6, let all God's angels worship him. So angels worship Jesus. Jesus doesn't worship angels. Verses 7, 8, and 9, angels are powerful beings. I mean, winds, ministers of flame and fire. But as powerful as they are, verse 8, Jesus is the one on the throne. Okay, so angels are around the throne worshiping Jesus. Verse 10, you, Lord, speaking of Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So angels are created beings. Jesus alone is the only uncreated entity in the cosmos. Okay, and then verse 13, to which the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That comes from Psalm 110. Jesus himself quoted this passage to uh, show people that he was teaching that he was God himself. So Jesus is God himself. Angels are not. So you're probably asking, okay, that's great, but this sounds arcane, this sounds irrelevant to me. But once you understand the position the original audience was in, it makes a lot of sense. And in the time period that this sermon was given, um, there was an intense cultural fascination with angels. So a lot of people believed in, that angels were very powerful beings. And, you know, if we read the scriptures, they are very powerful beings. But people viewed them as, you know, personal guardians. But more than that, angels had a place on the political hierarchy, So angels were actually above kings on the hierarchy. So if you could pay homage to and worship and honor angels, then you would know. Because, I mean, if they're above kings, then you can know that, you know, you're going to get the security and the prosperity that you want. And so what the author of Hebrews here is doing is he's saying, as great as angels are, Jesus is far superior to angels. Okay, so what's the point for us today? And here's what the author is getting at. The author is getting at this reality for, you know, whether you're a Christian or not, in every human heart, there is going to be something better than Jesus for you. It's not that you don't believe in Jesus. It's not even that you don't love Jesus, but it's that you love Jesus, but there's something else that's fighting for ascendancy in your heart that you love more. And so a friend of mine, he recently shared how, so he has, he has three kids and he's a pastor. And he shared this story how when his, one of his sons was four years old, 
uh, he and his wife were in a season where they were looking to buy a home. You know, so they're on Redfin all the time. They're on HGTV, like, you know, looking at, like, what upgrades they can do to the house they purchase. And one day he looks at his son and he goes, hey, you know, son, what do you think is most important to your mom and dad? S- like, beyond a shadow of a doubt, sure, that he was going to say, Jesus, you know, he's a pastor. The child looks at him, he goes, Redfin. And he goes, Redfin, boy, you know, what the heck are you talking about? He goes, well, you know, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you guys are on Redfin all the time. And, you know, it's what I see you most, it's, it's what I see you get most excited about. And my friend goes, oh, my wife and I were so convicted to look at Redfin only when my child was sleeping. Okay, but, <laughs> see, okay, so that, that's kind of funny, but it should be sobering, right? Because if, if somebody were to, the, like the people who look at your life, you know, do they see you getting more marked by eagerness when you're getting ready to visit a new city or go eat some really good food or go see a good show? Or are you marked by more anticipation when you're about to come to worship service or go to a discipleship group? It's not that shows and cities and, and restaurants are bad. See, even angels, verse 14, they're ministering spirits and not to serve us, the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Angels are good. But what happens when you make something good the greatest, right? That's how we drift. And so here we see the connection between Christ's purity over angels to his warning not to drift because what the author is saying is we need to broaden our categories and how we think about abandoning the faith. Because a lot of us think about, oh, you know, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and say I've converted to atheism or I've converted to Hinduism. You know, but what the author is saying actually is like the road to leaving Christ is marked by taking other things, even good things, and making them better than Jesus until one day it might be six months, it might be 15 years, you've looked and you've drifted a long way. Okay, so that's the first thing we see is how does drifting happen? It's when we make something better than Jesus. Okay, this is is hard, but the, the author of Hebrews is a good pastor, so he lovingly wants to come alongside us and help us. And so now that we know that, okay, how can we avoid drifting, right? If the theme of Hebrews, right, is persevere, draw near to Christ. How can, we, how can we avoid drifting away? And the first thing we see is we need to pay attention to cultural gods. Uh, if you're here and you're not a believer, we're just here, we're following the, the theme of Scripture and Christ himself who teaches that every human being, whether you're religious or not, is a worshiper and looks to something as a god to give you happiness and security. And so we, like in any, any culture collectively, we often have gods that they, they look to collectively. And so Where do we see that? Well, we see it, it's a strong implication in verse 1. So therefore, we we must pay much closer attention. So the phrase here is like, pay super, super close attention so that you change how you live. And what he's getting at here is, in the culture that the, the, the Hebrews were in, right, angels were seen as a benign thing, right? So they're, they're worshiping angels. And so the point here is, the author is saying, is you think about abandoning Christ, don't necessarily think about, you know, okay, so how do I avoid, you know, the ghastly sins? Okay, I'm going to make sure I'm not going to go to Las Vegas next year, you know, and go wild and crazy. Although you, you should avoid the ghastly sins. What he's saying that you should pay attention to are what are the quote-unquote benign sins that are in the culture that the culture just sees as a given and many in the church see as a given, and that's what you need to avoid, right? Because the temptation for the Hebrews here is, is everyone around them, even people in the church, are looking to angels as being better than Jesus, they're thinking, okay, I can appropriate angels into my own worship, and it's not going to be that big of a deal. And so for us, as we think about, you know, like, what are some of the cultural gods in the DMV area that I think a lot of us in the church just unthinkingly adopt? 
you know, we don't even question and we assimilate into our life. You know, there are a number we could talk about, but one that I thought of recently because of a conversation I had is the, you could call it the God of upgrade, right? It's, it's intuitive to us. Like we're always just thinking, what's the next step, okay? Or what's the next phase, you know, what's the next milestone? And so I was having a conversation with one of my friends who's a follower of Jesus. This was about a year ago. And Kelsey and I, we moved into, we moved from one town home into a town home that's slightly bigger. And he had bought his first home. And so we were having this conversation. We're just, you know, like excited about uh, these new homes that God's blessed us with. And toward the end of the conversation, my friend makes this comment. He goes, yeah, we're moving up. And it just, I thought about, and this isn't a dig at him. Like, it made me think more about myself than him. Because it made me think about, like, how do I think about moving up in the world? Right? And how do we as believers think about upgrade? In the world. I think for a lot of us, as we think about, you know, moving up, we think job promotion, we think, you know, maybe finding a spouse, we think, um, yeah, moving to a new city, whatever it may be. And I hope all of you get promoted because you're working with diligence, you know, in your jobs. But the problem with those categories is there are no categories Jesus ever gives. And the categories Jesus gives when it comes to upgrade is are you becoming more sacrificially loving toward your brothers and sisters in your church? Are you growing in gentleness? Are you becoming more easily open to correction? Are you becoming more generous with your finances? Like, that's what Jesus talks about when he talks about upgrading. And so as we look at our lives, you know, even think about something as simple as, you know, like renovating a kitchen, or, you know, buying a bigger house. Well, I don't think those things are inherently sinful. Like, they can be very good things. But you should ask yourself, am I so consumed by that that maybe I'm not tithing because of it, or I'm not generous because of it, or I'm more fascinated by HDTV than I am, you know, caring for my brother and sister in the church? And then just on a broader category, you know, have I adopted the cultural, the culture's grid for upgrading, or am I looking at it through the lens of Jesus? So uh, that's the first thing, just he's asking us to be thoughtful um, toward the things that we just adopt un- unthinkingly and to, to challenge those uh, when is needed. And so that, that's the first thing, uh, beware of, of cultural gods, pay attention to them. Number two, pay attention to Christ's word. We see this in verse two and three of chapter two. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution— how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So this is a warning and an encouragement. So the warning first is he's saying, you know, in the Old Testament, you see God speaking through intermediaries, such as prophets. We saw that chapter one, angels. And when God revealed his grace and his character to the Old Testament people of God, you know, depending on how they responded, the people were accountable to how they responded to God. And so what the author is saying, if when his message was mediated through angels, there was a just, you know, blessing or retribution based on how you respond to God's mercy. How shall we escape if God's now revealed himself, not just most lovingly, but most clearly through his son? And so this is a plea here to, you know, rather than relying on yourself, um, to lean into Christ as the answer for your brokenness instead of trying to stand before God's justice on your own. So there's a warning here to, to pay attention to the clarity of Christ, God himself, his revelation. But there's also an encouragement. And admittedly, it's an encouragement with an edge to it. It's an edgy encouragement. But try to follow the logic here. So he says, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And what he's saying here is, so when God gave the Israelites the law, 
he always followed through with what he said he would do. So discipline for disobedience, blessings for obedience, right? And then it was declared first by the Lord, verse 3, that's Jesus. It was attested to us by those who heard, meaning God began to give us his revelation, Old Testament. Then he came as Jesus Christ himself, who lived consistently within the message that he gave us. And so here's the, there's so much here. I'm just trying to bring it down to like one point of application here is what he's saying here is God is a truth teller and he's always consistent with his message. And here's how that's relevant to us today. Um, So as you think about any belief that you hold, any belief that you hold, or probably almost every belief that you hold comes from an author somewhere. Very important, like, to understand our understanding is very important. Okay, so any belief you hold is going to come from an author somewhere. We don't live in vacuums. So whether it's your political assumptions or social assumptions or religious assumptions, you know, those came from people who got it from people who got it from people, you know, often written down. And what the author is saying is pay attention to who the authors are that you're listening to. Because it's not just that Jesus is more grand or more wise than every other author. It's that he's more consistent than any author with his own teaching. And so just as a couple of examples. So, you know, Karl Marx, who's very well known for critiquing the, you know, the oppression of the working class by the ruling class. Karl Marx didn't pay his own maid. Uh, Rousseau, you know, 18th century thinker who he laid one of the foundational bricks for how we think about sexuality and freedom today. Uh, he had multiple lovers, had multiple children through those lovers, and didn't pay child support for those kids, right? They weren't consistent with their teaching. No human is consistent with their—I'm I'm not always consistent with my teaching. You guys aren't consistent with your teaching. There's only one person in the history of the world who's been absolutely consistent with his teaching, and that's Jesus Christ. There is never an inconsistency between his actions and his speech. This is why they had to draw up false charges against him at his trial, He continued to wow people with his actions. They were the surprises of perfection every time he did anything. And so for you today, just be so careful. I'm not saying that, you know, anybody you read, even people like Marx and Rousseau, there are things to learn from them, right? As Christians, we don't just smash anything a a non-Christian author says. But we should be very thoughtful. And who are we holding to, right, as the ultimate author, so are we taking a preconceived grid that we've gotten some, from somewhere else and then critiquing Scripture through it? Or are we taking Scripture that Christ inspired and using that as the grid by which we critique everything else? Because it's only the words of Jesus that lead to light and life and are pure and true. So pay attention to the words of Christ in order to not drift away. Okay, so number three, we pay attention to cultural gods, the word of Christ. Number three, the church of Christ. <clears throat> we see that in verse four. While God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So a lot here. Uh, but one thing we see here is, okay, so gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So places like Romans 12 and um, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, they talk about gifts of the Holy Spirit that have been given to believers in the church for the purpose of building up other people. And some examples we see are service, mercy, teaching, leadership. Okay, like all these gifts the Holy Spirit gives us as believers for the purpose of building up others. And what the author is saying here is if you don't want to drift, 
essentially pay attention to and be enmeshed in a local body of believers because that's one of the clearest places where you see the power of God at work. See, it says uh, miracles in verse 4. So there were miracles like the, the lame walking, the blind seeing in the book of Acts, which is a unique period in history where God was, you know, getting his church off the ground. But we still see miracles today. The biggest which, and you know, I think sometimes God does still heal people. It's not, certainly not the ordinary way that he works. I think it still does happen. But what's the most profound miracle that takes place? If you just look to the left and the right and see the people who are next to you in these pews, anyone you see who has surrendered the throne of their life to Christ the King, that is an absolute miracle. That is a miracle. And we should never grow numb to that. And as we think about the gifts that God's given to people in the body, I, I, can't, I can't overstate how much just sharing life with you guys has helped your pastor persevere. I mean, when I get here in two to three hours before service, there are already a bunch of you setting up signs and speakers and getting the communion tables ready, the worship team leading worship, rehearsing during the week, people staying late to break down. We were on paternity leave. You would just show up at 5 p.m. for service, and the whole service happened without needing to say anything. It was great. I can retire early. <laughs> and even just over the past few months, I mean, I've had conversations with people who are in this room, people who have said, I really want this relationship, but it doesn't align with Jesus, and so I'm going to let it go. Uh, people who have told me, you know, I haven't tithed before, but Christ has been working me, and, and starting next month, I'm going to tithe. Uh, multiple people have come up to me and said, hey, I got this job offer. Uh, it looks great. Can you just look at it with me and make sure I'm not looking at it through the lens of self-interest rather than how can I help others and glorify Jesus? When I see you guys do those things, that fuels my hope and builds my faith, a faith that I often wish wasn't so frail, in a way that so many other things don't do. And so, yes, can the church be frustrating? Yes. Will people in the church burn you? Yes. I mean, it makes sense because God has saved sinners. We're all works in progress. But the exhortation here of this author is, you know, either if you're just tired or somebody said something they shouldn't have, rather than distancing yourself, you know, which is the natural reaction, I've done this many times in the past, push into the church because this is one of the clearest places that you won't drift because you see the power of God at work. Okay, so pay, pay attention, just open your eyes to the glory of what is taking place as God works in our church. And then number four, most important, uh, pay attention to Christ's power and beauty. So we saw in the opening of Hebrews the, 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 the glorious, one of the glorious facets of our God is that he never gives us exhortations without also giving us power and presence and promises, right? Because if you just give a command without promises, it's like asking your pet, cat, or dog to make you dinner. You can exhort and they can't do it. So here, you know, I mean, being aware of what cultural gods are we assimilating for ourselves, you know, paying attention to Christ's word, paying, like, being in the midst of God, those are all amazing things, give us joy, but they can often be so hard. So what is the, the power and the promise that, that God gives us to allow us to do that? And that's when we behold the power and the beauty of Christ. So see, it starts chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, huge. What is therefore referring to? We must pay attention to what we've heard. What's what we've heard? All of verse 1. All of verse 1, like condensed down, is saying Jesus is the man, is chapter 1. And so 
uh, chapter 1, verse 2, you know, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Let's just take that one thing, through whom he created the world, Jesus has created the world, and marvel at him and see how this helps us not to drift away from Christ our Savior. And so, if, uh, so we think about Jesus holding the world, if you could draw up the, the first slide. If you've, I'm sure all of you have seen this, but please just bear, let's do this together. Jesus says, you know, enter the kingdom, you just be like a child. Let's recapture our sense of wonder as we look at our Jesus who upholds the world. So here is earth, and earth is impressive. It's bigger than Venus, it's bigger than Mars. Everything that's happened in your life has taken place on this large blue rock hurtling throughout the cosmos. Earth is a big deal. Okay, so earth is a big deal, and then we go to the next slide until we see, wow. So even, like, I feel like, look at Neptune. Neptune doesn't get that much press, but it looks awesome. Why is it blue? I, there's probably somebody here with, like, an astrophysics degree, and sorry if I'm stumbling into uh, astronomy heresy, but, so Neptune's enormous compared to the earth, and then look at Jupiter. It's mammoth. Absolutely mammoth. Until we keep going. Wow. <laughs> you can barely see the earth. That's our sun. What a brilliant... Hey, wait, 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 wait. Go back, go back, go back. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> you guys get it. Impressively massive, fiery ball that gives light and life to our world, the sun. And until finally we see, this is the last one. So, do you see the sun now? It's a pixel on the bottom left. Uh, Jupiter is invisible, let alone our Earth. And Jesus looks at this and he says, I made it. How'd you make it, Jesus? I spoke it. <laughs> I spoke it with a word. I get impressed with myself when I fold my laundry. <laughs> okay, some of you guys get impressed when you make your own dinner instead of ordering Uber Eats. Jesus said, I spoke this and I uphold it with a word. And it's not just his power in the massive things. It's his power and creativity in the little things here because Jesus created friendship and intimacy and food and laughter. Every single thing that makes life worth living Jesus created. So as we see Christ, the power of Christ, you know, how can we help but be drawn to him? But more than the power of Christ, it's the beauty of Christ. You see how he describes the salvation of Christ in verse 3 of chapter 2? How shall we neglect such a great salvation? Here's what makes the salvation of Jesus Christ like, just so amazing, and it's the beauty of his character. There's no one like him who does this. So he says, like, the Jesus who upholds the stars. He looks at you and he says, I so badly want to give you a place of belonging in my kingdom, free of shame and all regret, and brought into a life of full bliss that you can begin to enjoy today, that I'm going to, even though I'm equal with God, I'm not going to count equality with God a thing to be grasped but I'm going to empty myself and take on the form of a servant. And Jesus Christ, what he does in the incarnation is he kneels at your feet and he says, when you and I enter into a love relationship, 
there is nothing that can dislodge my love from you. Not a billion failures. And I'm going to go to the cross for you and then rise again from the grave to give you life full and free. There is no one better than Jesus. And so the message of Hebrews chapter one, the beginning of chapter two, it's not so much avoid this, it's just see the beauty and the character of your king and run to him with arms wide open. What an amazing savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you are incredible, and I thank you so much for Christ and loving us enough to give us this challenging word uh, not to drift away, but I pray that uh, we will see um, as good as so many other things are that we want, um, relationships, job security, all, all the usual things that we want, Lord, um, help us to want Christ so much more. Um, help us to see that he's worth it and for all of us to uh, just gladly submit our lives to him and experience the bliss and freedom that flows as a result. Uh, give us the power to do it as we can't do it on our own. Thank you for your inspired word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.